Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I'm sitting today with Karen Brunwasser, who is involved with a fascinating project called Mikudeshet, which we will get to in just a couple of minutes. Um, so first of all, Karen, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. It's an honor to be here. And um, before we get to your work with Mikudeshet and its vision for Jerusalem, just a little bit about you, how you ended up here, where you're from, and all that. So I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, and I'm a proud Philadelphian. Um, my, I, I was born to a son of Holocaust survivors on one end and a convert to Judaism on the other end, which made for an interesting experience when I tried to get married in this country, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, sort of because of that background, I had a lot of questions about being Jewish. It was clearly a choice in my family, uh, a choice that had come through a lot of uh, challenges. Growing up in that kind of a family, there were, uh, I guess we were a very strongly Jewish family, but but I had questions because um, I had other kinds of family that was not Jewish and, and um, the Holocaust sort of played a factor in, in, in generating a lot of questions for me. And um, I eventually uh, decided that I needed to make certain decisions and was very attracted to Israel as a place that I could figure out what I thought about being Jewish. And my parents took us from my brother's bar mitzvah when I was 16 years old to Jerusalem and to Israel. And I wound up uh, just being enthralled with this place um, and not being able to get over it. Uh, I spent many years coming back and forth until I finally made Aliyah when I was 28. Um, and then I made Aliyah to Jerusalem, let's say just at the, at the end of the second intifada in 2005. Um, and I came back to a city that was kind of on its knees, that had been brought to its knees. Um, and realized that if I wanted to stay in the city, I needed to get involved in, well, maybe I'm going too far with that, with that answer, but uh, I'll stop there. So it's actually interesting, you know, you and I have known each other for a very long time, and it never occurred to me until this moment that it might very well be that part of the work that you do in the Kudeshet, which is about bringing different groups together, and we'll hear more about that in just a sec, might actually have its roots even in your family makeup in terms of all kinds of people bridging divides and all that sort of thing. Very much so. You know, when you, you grow up in a family where um, you have, you know, real strong Catholic, Irish Catholics on one side and Jews on the other, um, it means that when somebody makes, uh, you know, a, a derogatory remark about Goyim, they're talking about your family. Uh, and alternatively, when they make, when they, when they, when they, when there's sort of strange comments made about Jews, uh, it's about you. Um, and I think in general, you know, they say that, that kids that are born uh, into a bilingual reality, they're able to see, uh, they know from a very early age that there are different perspectives on, on things. And I think that that had an effect on me. And I also grew up in the city of Philadelphia in public school, which was a, a really a formative experience because I, I grew up in one of the most uh, diverse uh, uh, school 
districts in the United States. Um, and from a very early age, new uh, black kids who were coming in from low-income neighborhoods of the city, all kinds of immigrants, Latinos, all, all different kinds of people were my everyday life. Um, and that, I think, is to a, to a great extent one of the reasons why I'm drawn to Jerusalem and to the work that I do. I really uh, believe in diversity. I believe it's a corrective to uh, blind spots, to, um, to tunnel vision, to echo chambers. Um, and uh, so I'm very I, I believe I need that in my life. So you and I actually agree about that a lot. A lot of times I'll hear people say, well, you know, we have 20% Arabs in this country. It would be a lot simpler if we didn't, but they're here and they're citizens, so we have to make the best of it and do the best that we can for them. And I actually totally disagree with that view. My view is actually that it's fabulous that they're here and that if this place was all Jewish, it would be so insular and no correctives, no other ideas to ping things off of, no other cultures against which to think about our own. Um, that we would be impoverished. So you and I actually see the world very similarly when it comes to that. So tell us a little bit about the project called Mikudeshet. What's the word Mikudeshet mean? Uh, why is it called Mikudeshet? What does it do? Sure. Okay. So, so Mikudeshet, um, which translated into English uh, means sacred or actually more, more literally sanctified. Um, we are an independent uh, NGO. Um, we're an arts organization that creates original arts, music, culture, um, as a means of bridging divides between the different kinds of people that live here in the city. Um, and uh, we, for the last 10 years, have created uh, massive festivals in the summer months that are multidisciplinary. Um, we invite very uh, famous artists, both local and international, also up-and-coming artists, um, to really grapple with the city and in all of its complexity, its wildness, its craziness, its beauty, and create art out of that process. Um, and we, because we believe in Jerusalem and we believe that this city uh, has, has uh, with all of its brokenness, actually is the challenge that we must be dealing with, both as Israelis and, and, and maybe as humanity. Um, we, and we think that arts can be the vanguard in contending with that. And then we invite audiences to uh, engage with the work that we create, audiences of all kinds. Um, and we hope that that our work humanizes um, the humanizes, let's say, uh, some of the issues that we have here, so that you could perhaps see potential where before you only saw um, a dead end. So Mikudeshet, obviously, also in Hebrew, you write that obviously it means sacred or sanctified or holy. Right. It also means consecrated. Right. Um, so you can consecrate something for the temple. Back in the days when there was a temple, Correct. you could consecrate an animal or whatever. It would become hekdesh. Um, and people all, all know the word Kaddish, which is obviously a prayer, which is to sanctify God's name. It's got nothing to do with death. It's about sanctify God's mm. name. And Mikudesh, it also means married. Um, Correct. And um, <laughs> so if you go to a traditional Jewish ceremony after the ring part, the person officiating at the ceremony will say Mikudeshet, Mikudeshet, Mikudeshet. She's married, she's married, she's married. And I love the image of marriage for what you do. Because I'm definitely mar married to Jerusalem. Well, you're married to Jerusalem, <laughs> and what you're saying also is that these populations are also married to each other. And yes. we all know that marriage is tough. Like, you got to work things through, and it's not... It, but you're, you're in it for the long haul, hopefully, right? So I think the, the image of, or the metaphor of marriage is really great. So who, who's married? Who are these various populations um, that you're talking about? People listening to us might be saying, oh, yeah, okay, well, obviously Jews and Arabs. But it's much more complicated than that. So who are some of these populations who you're bringing together? Wow. Um, it's it's 
much more complicated than that for sure. There's there's certainly the east west divide in the city, the you know the Pal- Palestinians and Israelis, Jews, and and Arabs. Right, the Palestinians, Israelis, or the Palestinians being on the east side of Jerusalem by and large. Correct. The Jews by and large being on the west side, unless they move to the east side to make a point, but that's a separate group of people. Exactly, and and also you know important to mention, not all your listeners might realize this, but the, but the majority of Palestinians who live in Jerusalem are not Israeli citizens, unlike. Uh, uh, Arabs who live in within the Green Line um, in other parts of Israel. These, it, it actually, I think Jerusalem is the only city where Palestinians who are not Israeli citizens and Jews live together. Um, if right, and by the way, those Palestinians are also not citizens of the state of Jordan. In right, other words, they, they are actually citizens of no country correct, in the world. Correct. Um, we've actually interviewed somebody who's an Arab member of our faculty here at Chilean College uh, who was experiencing the horrible events of May 2021. And we interviewed some Jews in Lod who experienced one thing, and we interviewed a Palestinian woman from East Jerusalem who experienced something different. And she also made that same point about how she's actually not the citizen of any country in the world, exactly. uh, which is a whole complicated thing. So you've got you've got the Arabs on the east side, you've got the Jews mostly on the west side. Who else are you bringing together? We bring together um, ultra-Orthodox, both uh, artists and audiences with, with the rest of Jerusalem. But... But and so those are let's say the ones that are uh, the big groups the ultra orthodox the the East Jerusalemite Palestinians and let's say there's never a good word for this but the general Israeli population which which is Jews of different kinds who are non not ultra orthodox but but it's actually of course much more than that there's also um, a divide between uh, political perspectives both right and left and and what whatever's in between um, and there's there's also tradition versus versus uh, um, contemporary, modern, uh, liberal uh, tendencies. There's there's everything in Jerusalem. And sometimes the, the most acute conflicts actually come with in, in places that you, that you don't expect. So Jerusalem will challenge everyone. And, and we, and, and you know, the thing that, that's wild about it is that it's, it's not a kumbaya kind of project. This is a real city that we live in. And so we don't have a lot of illusions about this being a puzzle whose pieces can ultimately fit together perfectly. The pieces don't fit together, sort of like marriage, right? There's no, no such thing as true compatibility, let's say, in marriage. And there's no such thing as, as getting it all fixed in Jerusalem. Some, some pieces can fit together some of the time and others at other parts of the time. And some, but they can't all fit together at once. So... Um, we navigate that and we use art, which is a, a very, an especially, let's say, sensitive and human tool to navigate that process. So you do a lot of different kinds of art. And I've actually had the privilege over the years of attending some of the events, which have been truly memorable. I mean, okay. really memorable just because of who's there. And mm-hmm. you're sitting on the lawn and there's Arabs and there's women in hijabs and there's ultra-Orthodox guys with their tzitzis, you know. Uh, it's really kind of amazing to me. But one of the forms of art is music. It's not the only one that you do, right. but you do music. So let's just focus on music for a second. We've sure. actually done a couple of episodes uh, in the written version of this podcast, which is the Substack that comes out earlier in the week, looking at some Israeli songs. We've, we've did a, we did a whole analysis of Mayor Ariel's Modeani. Uh, we did a whole analysis Fantastic. of Naomi Shemmer's Aladvashvala. Oketz came out a couple months ago. Because uh, music somehow, as you point out, I mean, music is really a kind of a window onto the soul. And so, um, and everybody can appreciate it, I think. Everybody gets moved by music. Not everybody's going to get moved by the plastic arts. Some people can walk into a museum and just, it just doesn't speak to them. But it's the rare human being who doesn't have some memory of goosebumps from some moment of music. So music right. is obviously very rich with potential here. 
So give us some examples of the way, concrete examples of what kind of music has what has brought what kinds of people together in the work that you guys have been doing. Sure. So early on, we realized in our work that we needed to do we should be doing work that is uh, specific to Jerusalem, we call city specific, and should be dealing with issues that are specific to Jerusalem. And one of the, you know, the, the obvious one that you need to contend with when you're in the city is, is sacredness, right? That's, that's actually where, how we got to the, the name Mikvodeshet. And sacredness, of course, or, or uh, you know, arguments over sacredness is, is often a source of conflict in the city. People who look at sacredness as, uh, as a zero-sum game, mine or yours, and we thought about this, the fact that cultures from all over the world have sacred music traditions. And what if we could take, you know, gather uh, musicians from, from countries all over the world, from, from all different faiths, from all different backgrounds, and also from the different uh, traditions and cultures that are, that are here and locally, and try to create um, a festival in which sacredness was a bridge rather than a source of conflict. So what kind of music did people hear when they went to it? A bajillion different kinds of music. So right? give us so, five examples. So, um, you know, everything from, we, we, we had a very, very popular uh, reggae slot, for example, which is, which is, a, which is, a, which is a, a sacred form of music, obviously, that originates in Jamaica. But we also had uh, Shabab al-Andalus, for example. And this is an extraordinary Moroccan uh, ensemble that is uh, comprised of Muslim musicians. But when they came to Israel, um, they performed together with Harav Chaim Luk, who Harav Chaim Luk is um, uh, originally himself from Morocco. He's a rabbi, but also um, uh, a really um, exceptional Paitan. Paitan is um, is someone who is a, a, a performer of a Jewish liturgical music, mostly from the Middle East. And these musicians are of what background? They were Muslim. They're Muslim, and he was, and he's Jewish. Obviously. Okay, so you have on the stage here these Muslim musicians together. singing and performing with this very orthodox. Rabbi. Exactly, and 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 using that music um, as a way of 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 celebrating one another's cultures. That's another example. So we you can had... sit in the audience. Sorry to interrupt you, but sure. You can sit in the audience and listen to it, and you can say, "That's my music," right? But you could be sitting next to an Arab person who's sitting on the grass near you, who's also looking at the stage and saying, "That's my music." Um, somehow or another, normally you would sit next to that person in the lawn and think, okay, he's him, I'm me, we're just trying to get along. But this music is kind of the link. You know, we're sitting in my office at Shalim College, and if you stood up and looked outside the window, you would see the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. You can see the whole, whole old city. It's actually a fabulous view. And I only mention it now because uh, I, I see it, obviously, many times a day, every day. And I still get moved by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see it as the ultimate reminder that we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. You know, we, made, we really made Aliyah. That is not a backdrop. And I see the old city and the Temple Mount. When it snows, it's beyond, beyond beautiful. But when I look out there, I am kind of seeing, I'm actually not even seeing what it is that I'm seeing, because you really can't see the Western Wall. You can see the Dome of the Rock, but you can't see the Western Wall from here. But it, that view means something to me and still moves me. The other day, I had a woman in here, an Israeli-Arab woman who's a phenomenal leading educator in Israel. I mean, she came in to have a conversation, and she happened to amble over towards the window, and she says, oh, my God. She was looking at the same thing, but she was, of course, seeing something very different Mm. because she was actually seeing the mosque. But I can't see the part of the real estate that's the one that's supposed to move. But I know it's there, and it's still moving to me. But again, she and I are looking at exactly the same view out the same window, we both get kind of, you know, warm and fuzzies from it at the very minimum, but we're seeing two different things. And here you're sort of describing something very similar. Here's an Orthodox Python, a rabbi who is from a, a Moroccan culture, who is an expert in Jewish liturgical music, singing 
sacred music with people who, if you just read the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, they're sort of our enemies. Right. And what the, what the music is basically saying is, there's a political divide here, of course. There's military tensions here, of course. But we share this city. We share the region. And if you can feel that about the music, I'm guessing, I'm speaking as someone who's come to some of the concerts and who's mm. really been moved by it. If you can feel that now, how do you extrapolate from that and take that from there? Because the goal, of course, isn't just the music, right? The goal is to have changed beyond, I'm, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, one of the most uh, powerful things that we've experienced in recent years is the way that the shared cultural and musical heritage of Jews and Arabs in this country uh, offers an opportunity to connect. Um, so, you know, we mentioned piyut before, Jewish liturgical singing from, from uh, the Middle East and Spain. A lot of the, the what are now religious songs that are song, sung in synagogues uh, here in Israel uh, by Middle Eastern communities actually started as popular songs uh, in the Arab world, right? Um, so that, you know, we had a concert uh, a few years back where somebody that I knew, who was not somebody who would come to a coexistence event, um, was in the audience. And there were, there were songs being sung in Arabic, but she's of Middle Eastern descent. And those were the songs that her grandmother sang to her, and she cried. And it completely opened her up in a way that was... You know, so she's Jewish. She's Jewish, yeah. Right, Jewish but woman. what made her cry was these Arabic songs. Exactly. Because they exactly. were the songs that her grandmother... They're, they're her songs too. And right, other, and, and, right. and many of the leading um, the leading musicians in the Arab world uh, prior to, to the creation of Israel were Jewish. So you have a, a really popular Israeli musician called Dudu Tassa, and he's descended from a family of uh, Iraqi musicians who were incredibly popular, uh, really influential in Iraq in their day. And he now has, um, he has a, a, a band called uh, Dudu Tassa and the Kuwaitis that is reviving that music. So in fact, this there's a, a general revival of Mizrahi culture and music happening in Israel where you have second and third generation Israelis of uh, descended from North Africa and the Middle East who are reclaiming that heritage on the one hand saying that this is part this this is part of our identity and must be part of Israeli culture and on the other hand this can also be a bridge to our neighbors um, you know we had this one of the, the people who is uh, who performs with us often is as uh, Rabbi uh, David Menachem who's also a very very uh, accomplished Python and a composer and a rabbi and he sings um, sold-out concerts of Um Kultum, who's like the, the most famous uh, 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 singer of Arabic music from the 20th century, um, a Egyptian, real diva, right? Egyptian. But that was music that everybody loved, and he sings her music. It's just sold-out concerts, including old, you know, uh, religious Jews from 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 the Middle East, but also young people. And when he these concerts are in Israel. These concerts are in Jerusalem and Israel, all over the place. Just make sure everybody understands. Here's this Orthodox rabbi. I mean, I mean, I've been to his concerts. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, a, yeah. he's the real deal. He's, he's not some Orthodox light. He looks like he's in Shas, right? He's right, very he, close exactly. to Abadia Yosef. Right. He looks like the real, real, real yeah, deal. Yeah. And here he is singing songs to a packed house, which are in Arabic. Yes. Written by sort of the Joan Baez of Egypt or something like that. Yes. Right. And, and and what's so funny is whenever. I think I just dated myself by saying Joan Baez, but whatever, okay. <laughs> I, I, I like Joan Baez. She's timeless. But what's amazing also is how our Palestinian colleagues and friends respond to him. When they see David Menachem singing in, in exquisite Arabic, their minds are blown. They, they, they don't even understand what's, what's going on or what's happening to them. In other words, this experience of, 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 of music 
blows people's minds and opens them up to possibilities that they didn't know were there before. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're trying to accomplish. So, you know, you, two things that you've said so far have reminded me of Israeli television shows. And Israeli mm-hmm. television is actually a great way of looking into Israeli society. Not all Israeli television, some of it's horrible. Um, you know, cops and robber shows and all that. But I was thinking of Shtisel, um, and I was thinking of Fauda. Mm-hmm. Right? Because normally when, I think most of our listeners think, oh, there's these Israelis that speak Arabic. Right. They think of undercover soldiers, you know, right. who can infiltrate Gaza or right. Nablus or whatever, Shechem. Um, but there's also Israelis who speak Arabic who sing and open people's hearts. It works both ways. And of course, Shtisel is one of those shows that when people have a conversation about Shtisel, they can have a conversation about Israel for a very, really long time and never once mention the conflict because the conflict never enters Shtisel. Shtisel is about <laughs> broken hearts and whole hearts and good marriages and bad marriages and people who are happy with their work and unhappy. And part of it is about art in the ultra-Orthodox world okay. because Kiva, who is one of the main characters, is, an, is a man who really wants to be an artist, but that community frowns on it. it he's very much an outlier because he's a painter. So in your experience with the ultra-Orthodox world of the people that are, work, that are involved with Nikudashet, who are obviously a self-selecting subgroup of the Haredi world. Tell us a little bit about the place that art has in the ultra-Orthodox world these days and how this exposure on their part to all these other kinds of people, what are they taking home about all of this? Wow, it's a great question. It's, it's a big question. So, um, you know, in the, ultra, in the ultra-Orthodox world, there are, uh, in, in general, certainly for men, men are supposed to be studying all the time it's right, that, yeshiva, right. they're supposed to be in yeshiva and doing things that are let's say uh, in you know uh, that are external to taking care of your family um being in yeshiva doing the stuff that is kind of the the the, the heart and soul of ultra-orthodox life are are, are frowned upon less than certain contexts ben hasmanim and, and, and other things so even the notion of I'm going to be an artist uh, who's not doing Judaica for the purpose of creating you know, ritual objects, but somebody who's going to be an artist from the, from, the, from the point of self-expression, there's already a challenge built into that. And also with women, you know, with women it's a little bit easier, but there... But it's harder in terms of hearing women, right? Do they have an, they have an issue with that, right? There, there, are, there are issues in terms of, cer- certainly in terms of women's voices, right? right, women, right. Women's voices are, 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 you know, have to be, can only be heard among other women. So do they come to performances where women are singing or not so much? So um, it depends on who it is. So, so, but the reality is, so there's all sorts of limitations on art. There's also skepticism of art because art is something that's about self-expression, uh, uh, freedom of expression to a great extent. And how does that, how does that square with, um, with Haredi life and Haredi Oh, because it's also about, very, it's about individualism, right? I mean, also, my art is who am I? Exactly. And in a large measure, the Haredi world actually believes that Jewish power and Jewish strength and Jewish survival comes from being part of a larger whole. Right. And when you look at the pictures of all of these people and they look, you know, kind of indistinguishable because that's actually intentional. It's not that they're not all individual human beings, but why did they, let's put the positive spin on it now, right? Why did they, at the beginning of COVID, consistently violate the limitations on weddings and funerals and lockdowns and all of that? Because for them, there is no life outside of community. There's no point staying alive if you can't be part of your community. Now, again, people like you and me probably had huge issues with that, but if you want to look at it from the positive standpoint, this is about communal life. And art is, to a certain extent, I guess, right, pulling you out of that and saying you as an individual, 
you think differently, you feel differently, you dream differently, you paint differently, exactly. you sing differently, etc. So, um, who have they met? These guys. So, are they women, men and women? Or? Men and women. So, and okay. here and here's here's actually all of what you said is true about the collective um, being at the center of of Haredi life. Here's the problem, though. Here's what happens: the artistic impulse makes its way into the, 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 the lives and bodies of people wherever they are. So you wind up finding Haredim, right, who just have to be artists, right? It's, it's such an, a strong impulse. Within them you have even, we've, we've talked to rabbis who have said, I have a son, he can't sit still in, in, in Cheder, and no matter what I do, but give him, you know, like, like Kiva, give him some crayons and, and he, can, he can be there for hours, right? This is something, this is a reality that forces some accommodation, right? And um, and so what you're seeing now is um, more and more uh, Haredi artists figuring out a way to navigate the community and their need to be creative. The, the Haredi, the Haredi okay. community in general. And so, um, and so, but there, but there are all sorts of limitations. So for example, uh, you have now um, a really impressive and, and growing um, uh, uh, department of B'Tzalel, which is Israel's Art and Design Academy, that is for Haredi women. Okay, mm. that are and, and and a lot of times the way that it is justified is that these women are then you know if it's directed towards ultimately making a career, then then it's then you can justify studying art. If you're going to be a graphic designer or or, or something that allows you to make a living from it, then then it's easier. It's an easier pill to swallow. But there's also people that are just going to be proper artists there, dancers and and visual artists and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, they, but how do you teach the history of art, which you certainly teach at B'Tzalel, to Haredim, when so much of the history of art is Christian art, right? Um, right? So, so there's, there's a library of art there, for example, um, of art books, and uh, part of it isn't there. Part of it is taken out. Part of it is censored. There's books that, you know, you would, you would assume to see in an art school that aren't there, for example. And there are certain words that you don't use. You don't, you don't say a hatsaga for a play. There's another word that's used. I don't even remember what it is. But there's, but there's all kinds of limitations that need to be navigated. That being said, put the limitations aside. Um, you have a growing number of Haredi women in art. We have, we have two communities, a, a, a community of, of Haredi women who go through something of a masterclass with us at Mikwadeshet, and a community of, 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 of Haredi men, ultra-Orthodox men, that go through a masterclass, um, because these are people that just need to express themselves. They need, they have that impulse, and they don't, necess- they don't have in their communities the resources to figure out how do you become a professional artist necessarily, right? How do you take advantage of the grants that are offered by the Ministry of Culture? How do you create a resume for in, a, in an artistic context? How do you produce? Like, there's a million uh, pieces that, that they sort of need, they are looking for help with. So we, as, as an organization that does professional arts, we both sort of do some uh, mentoring and training. And then in many cases, some people want to actually create with us. Um, and some people just want the training and, 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 and just want to come to that kind of stuff and don't feel comfortable um, being part of the, you know, the broader sort of events of Mikudesh. They, 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 they couldn't come to them, right? So, so Mikudesh is serving different kinds of people in different kinds of ways. The common denominator is that you're open to everyone and that it's through the arts in, in a variety of ways, right? Exactly. So now... I mean, I could sit here and talk to you forever, but right. I, um, I want to ask you two different kinds of questions by way of beginning to wrap up. So the first one is, let's say somebody, you know, at the 30,000 foot level says, yeah. okay, Karen, I'm, I, you know, I would love to come to concerts and there's, there's master classes and there's this group and there's that. Yeah. What's the impact on Jerusalem? Um, has Mekudesha left a fingerprint on Jerusalem in, in your estimation, they might ask you? And what would you say? 
I think absolutely. You know, um, I, I think I think you know we, when we created the organization, I mentioned that uh, it was a time when Jerusalem was really licking its wounds from the Second Intifada, and and there was an effort that was not just us; it was also the municipality and Yerbarkat, and it was other institutions and, and artists around the city, an effort to revitalize the city's cultural life. And we played a very leading role, I believe, in that. And today, Jerusalem's cultural life is absolutely bustling, um, not only in terms of, you know, the amount of stuff, but also the quality of stuff, and also the uniqueness of stuff. In other words, things that emerge from Jerusalem. And I think that our, um, the way that we did city-specific art has influenced the scene more broadly. And you see really interesting stuff coming out of the city because people deal with the city uh, very, very directly. Um, and, um, but I think more broadly, you know, we have spent, um, many, many, many years um, trying to figure out how you contend productively with the diversity of the city, making many, many mistakes along the way. And now we have a team at Mikudeshed, which is about a third Palestinian, about 15% ultra-Orthodox, and that's unheard of, not only in Jerusalem, also in Israeli society. Uh, there's no other professional arts organization that has that kind of diversity. And I and I know, you know, from, both from peers that have told me, but um, but kinds of evaluations that we've done that 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 kind of work um, shows people not not you know both both the team but also the work that the team does together it shows people that something is possible that they might not have realized was possible and then other people uh, you know sort of w start walking that path uh, I think I think also that you know one of the things that we've done over the years and which we're trying to do again now is we go into places in Jerusalem that might be underappreciated undervalued um, we do art and culture in that place that welcomes everybody, and then that place suddenly um, can take on a new life. We did that many, many years ago in, in the Machniuta Market when it was closed at night. We did a massive festival over the course of several years with artists and, and community members and people from the Shuk. And the you know there was part of a process that revitalized the Shuk as well. Right now, most... at night, you could begin to get a square foot space in there. It's exactly. Bustling. It's, it's, it's just a bumping uh, nightlife and culinary space. Um, and today, we are actually working on the share of a promenade, um, which is um, just out. We have a new culture house called Filbet. It's a culture house that's on the seam line between east and west. Um, and it's a, it's a collaborative effort of Jerusalem Jerusalemites, uh, creative Jerusalemites from all sectors to create a culture house that is welcome to all, that is accessible to all, that creates art for all. Where is it located? It's it's located um, exactly on the east-west seam line, the, the seam line between east and west Jerusalem. Like near the Museum of the Seam? No, it's it's located on the Sherover Promenade oh, in so Abu Oh, so it's that east-west seam line, okay. Um, and and it, we very deliberately picked the seam line because um, that is our work. Oh. And it's on this magnificent promenade, uh, the Sherover Promenade, that has sweeping views of Jerusalem. It's located in between Jewish and Arab neighborhoods, rich and poor neighborhoods, and has a history of tension and even some violence. Um, but what we're doing now is, um, when it's warm enough, we're, which is most of the year here, we're doing all sorts of events in this space that has been severely underutilized for years because people didn't feel comfortable in it. Um, and using art and culture to bring people back into the space, people of all different kinds, and establish it as a place where Palestinians are, are, are welcome, uh, uh, Israelis are, are welcome, and all different kinds of Palestinians and Israelis are welcome. The show of a promenade, by the way, for those of our listeners who one day when the skies open up, and people start traveling again. It is really worth just walking by there on a Shabbat afternoon, mm. which we do a lot. Uh, you know, you'll see ultra-Orthodox couples walking. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Arab families with kids tossing frisbees and balls, Jewish families tossing frisbees and balls, young modern Orthodox couples walking and sitting on park benches. The occasional Palestinian comes riding through on this gigantic horse, you know, going from one place to another. And it all works pretty smoothly. It's kind of a vision of what it could be. The same thing is true of the Mesila, the train tracks that go from the first station down to Malcha all these populations sharing that space. It's true of so many public spaces in Jerusalem. It's true of the Mamilla Mall. Right. It's true of all the malls, quite frankly. But but it's, And it's true of the hospitals, and it's true right. of the zoo. Um, the thing about Jerusalem that's so sort of strange to people um, is that a city of conflict, or that's so identified with conflict, is actually one in which its residents have a real um, capacity for diversity in their day-to-day life. I mean, you can't you get on the train here and you are face to face with every single kind of person in this society. And, you know, so it's this this funny thing where Jerusalem often gets a bad rap for being a, a closed-minded city. But in fact, the the muscle of tolerance is one that people have to use very much in their day-to-day life, much more than in other parts of the country. That's a fabulous point, which I never really thought of before. We interviewed um Shira Lawrence couple months ago, who's the founder of 0202, mm. which translates East Jerusalem Arabic language social media postings into Hebrew and West Jerusalem's Hebrew social media postings, Twitter and Facebook mostly into Arabic, so that the two sides of the population can at least read what are the other people Correct. talking about. What are they? And certainly in moments of crisis, what are they saying? How are they reading? And I think your, your point is really well taken. The city has a reputation as being a very tense, divided, whatever place. You read about Sheikh Jarrah or whatever. But in reality, it is that the, the, the tolerance muscle or the coexistence muscle, as you put it, is one that we actually exercise here a lot. And there's a lot more of the Sherover promenades and the railroad track park and the zoo and places where people really do actually coexist. So with that in mind, I want to ask you the last question, which takes us away from Ikudeshet a little bit um, and brings us to Karen the mother of two young daughters, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you grew up in Philadelphia in a very diverse community in a in a high school that was kind of the epitome of diversity. Mm-hmm. The, the nature of your family, one being an Irish Catholic by origin and one being the, the descendant of Holocaust survivors was also a way of your saying that uh, learning how to and that it was possible to uh, bring different kinds of groups together. And that's what your life is about now, professionally and personally. Uh, and you got these two young daughters and, um, you know, 20 years from now, they're going to be young women in their 20s and uh, making lives after the army, doing their thing. What's your, not hope, but sort of quasi-prediction, what's Jerusalem going to be like in 20 years? You know, it's them? so hard to say because the world is um, so uncertain right now in general. And, you know, you and I have talked about um how, how, how things are kind of upside down generally. But I'll say that um, I don't know what's going to be, but what I'm trying to teach my daughters is resilience, original thinking. Um, and I'm trying to teach them to live in high resolution with diversity, with challenges, with the things that aren't settled. And, and perfect. I, I do believe that we have an incredible advantage in Jerusalem right now because unlike what unfortunately I see sometimes when I go back to the States where uh, the polarization is so great um, that people feel as if they can't even talk to each other anymore and people feel as if they can't necessarily say what they actually think. 
in Jerusalem, um, we don't have that problem really. People still... We don't even have it in Israel. It really doesn't exist in Israel. Yeah. Even on the university campuses, we just don't have that. And I personally, seeing what's going on in the States, it's something that I'm really trying to, I mean, I, I will, I'm willing to fight for that um, because I, I think that it is incredibly precious, certainly in a place that has issues, you've got to be able to talk about them. And you have to be able to talk about them without fear that your head is going to be taken off. Um, and because, you know, I'm sitting in Jerusalem all the time, not just in my organization, but there are organizations all across the city, civil society. If you go into the municipality, if you go into the, if you go into the supermarket, and if you go into the, if you go into the, uh, the hospitals, wherever you go, there's all different kinds of people who are working together, but also talking to each other, talking to each other about the issues. Um, and I think that the fact that we're still talking to each other is really, uh, it, it's really important, maybe bodes well. Um, you know, we are kind of in uncharted territory with the world right now in terms of the way that technology is allowing for manipulation that never really sort of we never contended with before as people and, and, and surveillance, and all sorts of things that, you know, make me very nervous as a mother. But I am very happy that my daughters are growing up in a place where um, they can be. Uh, you know, I hope that they will be independent thinkers. I hope that they will know all different kinds of people. And I hope that they will be able to get past the, the political abstractions that dominate discourse um, on, you know, uh, on social media and down to the ground where the actual people live, uh, whatever their headdress or lack of headdress is, and know that they're people and have, you know, have relationships with them. That's what I want. And I think that that is very, very possible in today's Jerusalem. So in that way, I think that 20 years from now, Jerusalem could be a place um, that's doing better than other places in the world because we can still do that. I couldn't agree with you more. Israel is a place like that. Uh, Jerusalem is a place like that, and it's a place like that in no small measure uh, because of people like you uh, who do the work that you do and the work that Mukudesha and your colleagues do. So uh, it's, it's uplifting. It just fills us with a sense of optimism and a sense of a bright future that in this day's world, as you noted, we desperately need. So for sharing your insights into what you do and who these people are and what the future might bring, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.